Miss Grant, what on earth is that? The brigadier pointed at the small troll-like doll on Joe's desk. A fixed plastic smile, oversized nose and large staring eyes gave it a half-cute, half-grotesque appearance under a mass of unkempt, colourful hair. It's a strangeling. Joe picked up the doll and waggling it under her superior's moustache. They're the latest fad in Europe. She read out loud a tag that was tied to the doll's leg and the twisted English translation adopting a mock accent. 100% genuine Danish strangeling troll. <laughs> Legend is um, that the strangeling were turned to stone by gods. These 100% genuine limited edition strangeling was found in caves on the island of Bornholm. She paused. And some small print they didn't bother with in English. At the brigadier's bemused expression, Joe continued. One of the girls in the Danish headquarters brought a box over ahead of their launch over here. These limited edition ones are quite rare, something like only a few hundred, but she knew people and pulled a few strings. Isn't it cute? She made smooching sounds at the doll. Aren't you the cutest, wootish strangeling ever? The brigadier rolled his eyes. Miss Grant, this is a top secret military establishment, not a Wendy house. I usually don't mind staff embellishing their work areas with a few personal effects. But really? Joe lowered her eyes and put the strangeling doll back on her desk. Sorry, sir, she added quickly. The brigadier turned and strode off, leaving Joe to pull a face behind his back. Naughty miss, a voice behind her said. If the wind changes, you'll end up looking like your strangeling. She recognised the tones of Sergeant Benton, who had entered the laboratory quietly through another door. Benton picked up the doll. Ugly little beggar, isn't he, miss? Joe pouted and snatched the strangeling from the soldier's hands. How very dare you, Sergeant Benton. Strangelings have feelings too, you know. She kissed the doll on the nose. There, there. Don't take any notice of the cruel sergeant. Like the brigadier before him, Benton rolled his eyes and strode off. A smile on his lips. Women in their funny little ways. In the doctor's laboratory, the brigadier found Sergeant Osgood brooding over some complex apparatus. Any news on that strange space cloud? The brigadier asked. Osgood frowned over his spectacles. This orbital detector of the doctor's, he didn't really go into much detail, sir. You know how he is as explaining things. Rattles off a few long words and expects you to work from that. As far as I can tell, it won't make contact with our atmosphere, so probably no danger of contamination. It'll pass within the orbit of the moon from just after moonrise till about midnight, I expect. The full moon too, I gather. Any odd effects, expected? Osgood shook his head. No, sir. Haven't been able to make much of the spectroscopic readings regarding its composition. Beyond a high degree of copper oxide, apparently. Still waiting to hear what Jodrell Bank have to say. Probably just change the colour of the moon's disc. The brigadier raised an eyebrow. Any particular colour? Green, by any account. Emerald green. As long as there are no unpleasantries concerned, you know how odd some people get when there's a full moon, let alone a green one. Could be quite spectacular, sir. We're forecast clear skies here, whereas most of Europe is still having bad weather. The brigadier regarded the sergeant with a smile. 
Spectacular? I don't mind Osgood. It's downright dangerous that concerns me. Nevertheless, I'll be calling a yellow alert tonight. Everyone here on standby, just in case. Jo smiled as she saw Corporal Carol Bell walk past with a clutch of strangelings in her hands. Bell noticed her smirk and shrugged. Phew, for a few little girls I know, Bell blushed. They'll be the envy of their schools ahead of them being available over here. And would one of those girls be called Carol, age thirty-something and a half, going on six? Jo winked. Bell noticed Joe's own strangling perched on her desk, a smudge of lipstick on its nose. Oh, just you wait, Josephine Grant, Bell laughed. Mike Yates will go livid when he hears that it's more your type. Never thought you'd go for long hair. Two women laughed. As forecast, though rarely this accurately in England, the full moon rose brilliantly to a cloudless sky in the east as the sun dipped below the horizon. Joe sighed at the ascendant orb as it shone through the window. An alert meant everyone had to stay overnight in case of trouble. The main body of unit troops were okay in the mess, eating and drinking, but for her, confined to barracks as it were, should the doctor reappear as he always does when there is trouble, it meant an evening fighting with a typewriter or a filing cabinet. She pulled a face at her strangling as she tugged yet another Finnish science report for Sergeant Osgood from her typewriter and tossed a sheet into her outtray. This is no good, is it? Let's go and see what Carol is doing, huh? As she picked up the doll, she noticed the upper curve of the moon start to discolour and blur. A vivid, bright green was starting to spread over the disc as it climbed higher into the violet sky. Walking over to the window, Jo held her strangling up to show it. Silly, really, she thought, but she crooned to it that it must be the space cloud. In her palm, facing away from Jo towards the evening, the strangling blinked once. Then, as a beautiful but eerie green moonlight shone all over it, the doll blinked again and its smile became a thin, evil grin. Unlike Joe Grant, Corporal Bell was efficiently typing up reports. She glanced out at the rising moon as it shone through the window. The eerie but beautiful green glow was spreading over it. Look, sir, Bell called to the brigadier's office. It's starting. The brigadier walked over to the window. Seems fairly quiet, but as the saying goes, the night is still young. The two officers watched as the moon crept higher, getting brighter and greener. Unseen by both in Bell's office, the emerald moonlight illuminated the two strangelings stood vigilant over the paperwork on her desk. They blinked as their wide eyes were touched by the celestial glow, and their beaming faces twisted into deranged grins. Would you like a cup of tea, sir? Bell asked. There might not be time for one later if all hell breaks loose. The brigadier smiled at a joke. Very decent of you to offer, Corporal. Yes, please. Bell walked out to her office and was surprised to find one of the strangelings swinging on a chain of paper clips from the edge of her desk. She picked up the doll and started when she found its normally cold plastic body was warm and soft, like flesh. 
she did not have time to react to the well strangeness of the situation before the strangeling looked up at her with bright wild eyes grinning with sharp yellow teeth and it bit her thumb savagely Belle gave a yelp of surprised pain and dropped the doll it twisted acrobatically in the air and landed on its oversized feet nimbly on her chair it was then she noticed the other strangeling tugging at the almost open drawer Her thumb bleeding, Belle picked up a newspaper from her desk and rolled it up. As if trying to kill a spider, she brought it down swiftly onto the strangeling that bit her. The doll's eyes crossed and it spun round dizzily at the blow. Turning her attention to the other one, Belle hit it with an almighty thwack. The strangeling's arms and legs splayed out from under the rolled paper. Tentatively, she lifted the paper to see if it was dead. Dead, she thought. Bloody doll, isn't it? Plastic did not feel like a real flesh and blood when animated by the nesting. Of that she was certain. Two small hands suddenly grabbed the end of the paper and the strangeling managed to stand and snatch it off her. Wobbling precariously like a Scottish athlete about to toss a cable pole, the small doll swung the newspaper at her with considerable agility and it was more through shock than impact that Belle gave out a cry. The brigadier appeared in his office doorway to see Corporal Bell limping near her desk, clutching her chin. He was about to ask what was wrong when he saw two pairs of small hands grip the partially open drawer and slide it out with a series of mighty tugs. Sir, Bell gasped, it's... She did not have time to warn the brigadier. Green moonlight had already shone past her into the drawer and as the brigadier moved forward to give Bell some support, four more strangelings leapt out of it at them with an insane, giggling war cry. Sergeant Benton was closest to the scream and had his gun drawn as he opened the stationary storeroom. In the pale green moonlight flooding through the skylight, he could see Corporal Agnita Ustergaard the attractive blonde Danish liaison was almost climbing the far wall in a desperate bid to get away from something on the floor near her. The emerald glow reflected off something small and hairy and Benton's instinct was to level his gun at the rat he thought had scared Ustergaard. It was then he saw them, about two dozen, lined up on the racking, large eyes regarding him with wicked intent little grins of malicious eagerness. Benton's first thought was that the dolls were autons. It was dangerous to let off shots in such an enclosed space, especially when a ricochet could hit Oostergaard, but he had no choice. He aimed and fired at the ones on the further shelf in front of some boxes which had absorbed the shots. In a few jumps, they were behind him, on either side, at his feet. He spun and tried to level his gun again, but two strangelings were pulling at his bootlaces, creating a knot with impish dexterity. Benton stumbled and killed over to find himself face to face with a strangeling wielding a large staple gun bigger than himself. His last thought, before being pummeled unconscious by a leaping, bouncing horde of strangelings using office equipment as weapons, was how he was ever going to live down his defeat at the hands of dolls, not much bigger than his hand. Joe heard the shots and crashing sounds and ran to find out what was going on. Unarmed, it was probably not a good idea to confront the danger head-on. She almost ran into Captain Mike Yates as she turned down a corridor. Mike, what's happening? Joe gasped. 
The handsome captain shook his head. No idea. I think the shots came from this way. He ran off towards the stores. Joe bit her lip and followed him cautiously. She had forgotten about the strange thing she was carrying until it opened its smirking mouth wide and bit her finger. The storeroom door was ajar and Jates was about to push it open cautiously with his gun when Joe's startled cry made him turn. Something small with lots of brightly coloured hair was bounding away from Joe, who was sucking her bleeding finger. Distracted, he did not see the storeroom door open slowly until Joe's already large eyes widened more. Mike, behind you! The captain swivelled, gun aimed, but saw nothing. A scurry of movement around his feet made him lower his aim. The colourfully haired tops of tiny heads ran dizzying circles, pulling long lengths of string tight around his ankles. Like bending before him, Yates staggered and toppled. A trio of strangling grabbed his dropped gun and carried it beyond his reach. Zipping round him with athletic speed, the strangling bound him quickly with string and elastic bands tied together, then gagged him with sellotape. Uncertain what to do, Joe watched open-mouthed as Yates was made a prisoner, an army gulliver surrounded by lily putty and dolls. Discretion was definitely the better part of valour, she decided, and turned to run to get help. Any help. Then she felt movement on the ankle of her high-heeled boots. Two strangelings were having a race up her legs, one on each scrambling for tiny handholds like miniature steeplejacks. She tried to swap them off, but they clung to her tights and seemed to take insanely bemused delight when the fabric stretched and sagged under their weight. Giggling loudly, one managed to reach her right thigh as the other dangled by the nylon below Joe's knee, swinging and chortling as a new game of kicking Joe's shins. Fighting a losing battle against the mini intruders, Joe had no time to prepare herself as a horde of strangelings having dragged Yates into the store bounded at her, laughing and whooping down the corridor. Their tiny combined momentums knocked her sideways and she crashed to the floor. Joe regained her stunned senses in the storeroom propped up in a sitting position against a wall, wrists and ankles bound with string and sellotape. Beside her, Mike Yates looked like a caterpillar, the eager little strangelings having bound him almost entirely from feet to broad shoulders. In the green moonlight pouring in through the skylight, she could make out Benton, Bell, the Brigadier, Agnita Oostergood, Dr. Sullivan, and a few others equally helpless in various states of stationary equipment-aided bondage. All showed signs of fights with the creatures. The brigadier had bruising round his eye. Bell was bleeding from a cut lip. Benton and the others had their trouser legs and jacket sleeves stapled together. The strangelings had discovered some ink pads along with a few rubber stamps and had marked the wall and Benton's forehead with urgent a great number of times in red and blue. One strangeling, larger than the rest, was brandishing a letter opener like a sword above its head and making a speech to the others. To Joe it sounded like a recording speeded up or someone speaking after inhaling helium. Only Agnita was listening with a frown. Does anyone know what it's saying? Joe whispered loudly, hoping to prompt her. I think, Agnita paused, her accent giving her speech a slight lilt. It is an ancient form of... Danish or old Scandinavian, I make out few words here. The strangling leader was pointing to each one of them and jabbering away to more hysterical giggling from the others. The brigadier, Agnita ventured, 
it not un, not like his moustache and wants it as an offering, no, a prize. The brigadier, harrumphed and disgusted at the thought of being scalped by an animated doll, a stranging leapt up the brigadier's chest and balanced under his chin, trying to tug the officer's moustache off. With a big puff, the brigadier blew him back down. The strangling recovered in his lap, shook a small fist and jumped up and down on the brigadier's groin, making him wince. The strangling leader pointed at Joe. Agnita explained, It want to know if Joe's feet are big inside like her boots. Cheek, Joe retorted, wishing she could stamp on the strangling with the platform heels. Another strangling ran up, giggling excitedly. It placed two larger razors on the ground and used elastic bands to fasten them to the feet of their leader. The strangling clomped around, wiggling its bare behind in an unkind imitation of a woman's walk to more wild, high-pitched laughter. Joe went bright red when she realised the strangling was mimicking her. Yes, thank you, Twiggy. Joe quipped at the strangling. Don't call us, we'll call you. It's think you are perhaps important leader because you have high feet, Agnita explained. There was a murmur of suppressed laughter from the imprisoned unit staff. The strangling clomped around a bit more, then raised its letter opener again with an important sounding proclamation. This time Agnita's pale complexion went almost pure white as a colour drained from her face. That doesn't... The brigadier winced as a strangling on his lap continued to use him as a trampoline. Sound good. No, not good. Very bad. Care to tell the rest of us? Joe asked. The strangelings, they cursed as trolls. Agnita struggled with a translation. Made a stone long, long ago. Not moving like dolls. By gods, they say. Now they free. But to stay free... They need? Yes, the brigadier prompted when Agnita went silent. You're not like this. I already don't like it. The brigadier tried to wiggle his hips to shake off the jumping strangling. They need sacrifice, blood of man, to drink, stay alive. Joe Blanche too. All manner of terrors previously encountered by her while journeying with the doctor came to mind and the horrible ways the strangelings might sacrifice them and drink their blood, considering their unruly behaviour. A confusion of words to try and express how she felt tumbled around in her mind. In the end, her mouth suddenly dried with fear, could only croak one word. Oh, she said. They were known as the Brigade, and within UNIT they were the Brigadier's small, unofficial squad of experienced veterans and exceptional talents, second only to his close-knit team of Captain Yates and Sergeant Benton. The UNIT mess, as usual in times of standby, was packed. The Brigade, led by Sergeant Major Ian Cadwallader, a tall, middle-aged Welsh veteran, had grouped on one table to welcome its newest member. Private Amber Ruad. She was a first woman, one of the handful joining unit in a combat role instead of administrative to be offered a brigade ship. She accepted gracefully, knowing she made her previous director, Brigadier Noland, quite proud. Private Henry Lovett, the equal lowest ranked member, introduced himself, shaking her hand enthusiastically and making it no secret he found her attractive. 
Ruard was used to the attention as a civilian and soldier and tried to ignore it without being rude. Corporal Saar Mandal, a ruggedly dark handsome Asian, sporting a bushy moustache and Private First Class Cam McBaird, a cynical Scot in his late thirties, rounded out the squad, each shaking a hand powerfully. Ruard knew it to be a test of character and returned the grip with as much strength back. Both men smiled, quietly impressed. Another tradition was the newest member to get the first round in. Ruard stepped up again, wanting not to feel she was treated any differently or with kid gloves. She was a soldier too and would take on anyone, man oh man, or drink them under the table to prove it. And said so. Sounds like a gauntlet if any, Lovett smirked. Under your table or mine. Ruard just gave him a hard stare over her beer glass. Another tradition came to play, that of second round being bought by losing a match of arm wrestling. Last Bayer cheese's opponent, McBear drawled. Ruard rolled up her sleeve, showing a slender but honed bicep with a named heart tattoo. She singled out Lovett, determined to make a point. Mine's a double when you buy, sweetheart. Lovett grinned, trying to squint at the name in the heart. Anyone I know, or room for another? Ruard clamped her right palm to Lovett's, but Baird gave the go. Both privates started pushing. To Lovett's surprise, Ruard started to angle his arm downwards. Ah, you're letting the lassie win, just to get an elsewhere, McBear joked. Lovett ramped up his effort and Ruard winced, her arm twisting back slowly. Submit, love, he said through gritted teeth. Less painful in the long run. Slowly, Lovett pushed home until Ruard's hand was nearly on the table. Suddenly, her hand flashed across the table, a cutlery knife at Lovett's throat. Lovett flinched, and in that moment of surprise, Ruard slammed his hand down. Lovett ignored the stinging pain in his hand as he rubbed his neck, looking at Cadwallader for a decision. Ruard let the fairly blunt knife drop. The sergeant major smiled. Omnia bravia contratum. You should know that by now, Henrietta. Nicely played, Private Ruard. Bit against the rules, though. Lover's ego was feeling as bruised as his wrist. Oh, you heard the cad man, Macbeth laughed. That's a brigade motto. All bets are off. Aliens don't play Queensbury. You win, you live. No other moves matter. Lovett muttered under his breath as he cleared the table of glasses to get the round in. Ruard smiled at her new squad family. Omnia bravia contritum, huh? Now that I wouldn't mind a tattoo off. As one, Cadwallader, Mandal and Macbeth rolled up their sleeves to reveal their own tattoos. The Latin motto over a poker royal flush hand with the cards torn in two. Keep fighting like that, Mandel said, and we'll all chip in to treat you next leaf pass. Logo in Carver knows our drill. The agent looked at his watch again. Five minutes passed. Well, am I running fast? Cadwallader checked his watch. No, you're right. Carol Bell's not usually slow with hourly updates on yellow alert. Go check it out, but keep it low-key for now. The corporal got up casually and made for the loose, and veered out of the mess. He heard Macbeth cheer as Lovett returned with a round and hoped he'd get back for his soon.
It's that space cloud, Osgood suddenly piped up from where he had been bound and propped sitting up against the store wall. That's why it's happened now. Something in the cloud, in conjunction with the moonlight through it. He paused. Sorry, sir. I'm sure the doctor would come up with a single long scientific term for it all. Yes, well, have a single short and polite word for the situation, Osgood, the brigadier retorted, and we're very deep in it. Mandel walked down the corridors leading to the senior staff and administration offices. They were unusually quiet, too quiet as a cliché went. He turned a corner and froze. Three tiny naked figures, barely bigger than his hand and sporting wild, multicoloured hair, stood guard at the storeroom door at the corridor end. Strangelings. He had a couple of the small dolls in his locker for his daughter and her friend, but these were clearly alive. He pulled back quickly, but a frantic squealing told him he had been spotted. Cursing, he unholstered his pistol and peered round the junction. His eyes widened as he saw a horde of them hurtling out of the stores towards him. Instinct overtook surprise, and Mandel spun into the open, aiming with both hands. A crack shot he fired quickly. The strangelings were fast and agile, most spinning out of the way, but a few well-aimed bullets hit their marks, reducing them to splats of bone and gore, which coloured the walls like a Jackson Pollock mural. With barely feet before they reached him, Mandel decided discretion was most definitely the better part of valour, turned and head back towards the mess. There was an excited squealing from the other side of the store's closed door, followed by gunshots. A great many of the strangelings, urged by the leader waving his letter opener, flew at the door and tugged it open. The brigadier caught a glimpse of a soldier turning and running back, out of sight of the corridor junction. At least someone now knew, he sighed with relief inwardly. The diminutive strangeling leader passed his leg and swung a small kick at the brigadier's ankle. The brigadier didn't mind so much, knowing it was simply a matter of time now. Passing an alarm, Mandel smashed it with his elbow as he ran. A siren wailed loudly. Glancing behind him, he saw the pursuing closing creatures covering their ears with their hands. It was a break he needed. He flew into the mess, confronting a crowd of alert, battle-ready soldiers, discarding their meals and drinks. Mandel locked and bolted the door, indicating the other exits should be likewise secured. Moments later, rapid tiny thumps told them that strangelings had arrived. Their blurred silhouettes pounded angrily on the other side of the wired, frosted windows. Cadwallader was at his shoulders in moments, pistol drawn. Mandal quickly related his encounter. Another thing, sir, the store. I only had a glimpse, but some staff seemed to be held prisoner in it. I glimpsed uniforms and bindings, putting two and two together. Cadwallader grimaced. Bell and the others? Okay, hostage situation. We need diversions and rescue squads. Quickly, the sergeant major checked to see what arms and ammunitions were on them in the mess and decide who was best suited for the missions. You knew it was, sir. Osgood whispered to the brigadier as the insane, giggling, strangling war cry faded in their pursuit away from the store. The brigadier nodded, but his interest was more for the strangling leader and the few left guarding them. If I know my brigade, Cadwallader's plan will be divide and defeat. 
The Brigadier tried to make his idea sound like casual conversation. He had no idea if the strangings understood English, but if he gave what sounded like orders, they might suspect. Diversion and rescue. We can help with that. First sign of anyone, either way, we create merry hell and keep the strangelings preoccupied. Everyone clear on that? There was a slow agreement in half nods and murmurs. Does it seem right, Ruad said, dolls come into life? Oh, believe me, Macbeth had experience with such things as did Cadwallader and Mandel. You've had your briefings on past encounters, and that's not even the half of it. Make no mistake, though, they might look cute or pretty, but you have to treat all as deadly. No questions, just shoot to kill, assuming they can be. Mandel slammed a fresh magazine into his pistol. These can. We're going to need to decorate us with a mess I made some. The bloody agile, and man, can they move. Cadwallader was not so sure. Ammo's at a premium. Unless we can get to the munitions store, that's another priority. Unless you fancy hand-to-hand with a horde of them. Lovett was suddenly aware that the background pounding of the strangelings had dropped off to nothing. Cadwallader looked at the door. No shadows. Suspicious, he waved at the other doors and windows looking out on the dark moonlit grounds. They might be planning a counterattack. And with their agility and strength, even the strengthened windows might be a weak point in their line of defence. A crash from the kitchen behind the servery told them exactly where that weak point was. Catering goods in! Cadwallad yelled. In moments, the soldiers were swinging their weapons round to bear. Another crash, the sound of breaking glass told them that this was just diversion. One of the windows shattered inwards, propelled by part of a concrete slab torn from one of the pavements outside. They might be small, but it was obviously now that the strangelings also had superhuman strength for their size. The soldiers barely had time to react to the twin-pronged attack when a surge of the creatures cartwheeled in simultaneously through the servery and broken window. With ammunition in short supply, Cadwallader and his brigade tried to fire only when a hit was assured, but when the agile speed of the strangelings, they were in dire danger of being overwhelmed. Macbeth picked up a wooden chair and brought it down hard over a table, smashing it. Keeping one single leg in his fist, he swung it like a baseball bat, swatting a strangling in midair as it leapt for his throat with a savage grinning leer on its face. The small creature ricocheted across a room to crash against a far wall with a cross-eyed expression of pain that suggested it would not be returning to fight any time soon. Two more of the strangelings leapt high at Ruard in close formation with a swift dexterity that would have made a strangling proud. Lovett swept up, a large, deep stake and kidney pie in its foil base from the server counter and aimed it over arm like a cricket ball. The flying pastry splatted into them, knocking them back against the wall, but instead of sliding down, dazed like its compatriot, the meat and gravy clung to it. Two struggling, strangeling-shaped bulges moved weakly and futilely from within as they drowned in the unit cook's prize recipe stock. Eat your way out of that, wee ladies, Macbeth laughed. Any Scot would have you for brickies. Stifling their own laughs at Macbeth's call to arms, in the face of danger, the other unit soldiers started picking up bits of furniture and other assorted delicacies for the servery and their tables, and using them in any way they could to fight off the small devils clamouring for their blood. The distant sounds of the conflict made the brigadier bristle and struggle against his bonds even more. 
He hoped that the brigade, the pick of his men, would have the wits and the guts to fight the strangelings and lead a rescue. He could only contemplate the consequences if a larger number of the creatures were exposed to the eerie green moonlight and came to life all over Europe, or even with the world. He listened in on the conversation that Osgood was having with Agnita Ostergaard. The two were close to each other, their voices now low and conspiratorial, without looking at each other, a move which had not aroused their stranging guards yet. The brigadier tried to sound casual. Did you have uh, something in mind, Osgood? Osgood glanced at Agnita, trying to make it look like he was addressing her rather than his superior. There might be a solution, untested though, until we get a chance, but uh, Mr. Ostergood read something in Norse mythology once. It might or might not. A concise edition, please? Osgood harumphed quietly. Sorry, sir. But it might be that if a special moonlight brings the strangelings to life, then a special sunlight might stop them. The brigadier tried to gauge how long it was before dawn. That's still some good while off, even if it works. I don't fancy our dining captors waiting to start feasting. Oscar tried not to sound so excited. Well, we do have four spectral lamps in my workshop. They can go the whole range from infrared to ultraviolet. The doctor wouldn't get them for something. I wonder if they would have some effect. It sounded like a plan. Now if only they could get to the workshop. The bizarre food fight come bar brawl in the mess was taking its toll on both sides. Unit soldiers and strangelings alike were covered in an assortment of meals, snacks and beverages. But because of their small size, the strangelings were finding it more difficult to cope with the adhering food, weighing down even their superior strength. McBaird seemed to be in his element, recalling the rumbles he had been in as a Glaswegian youth. He had clambered behind the bar and was throwing some well-aimed bottles at the creatures. Ah, tis a waste of the finest, he yelled, finding an open bottle of scotch. But as you missed your round this time, and he threw it at a small regrouped strangelings formation, the drinks are definitely on you, chums. The bottle hit the strangelings square on, flooring them like ten pins under a bowling ball before it shattered into thick sharp shards and lacerated their small unprotected bodies. The burly Scot felt no remorse as he heard their small bones crack or saw their blood cake the floor. A surviving strangeling, which had managed to miss the alcoholic slaughter of its comrades, leapt angrily at McBaird. Suddenly find himself, without a handy bottle, he sized himself up and just roared at the creature, a war cry of indefinable meaning but savage intensity. The strangeling literally stopped in mid-flight, its small beady eyes wide with fear, its multicoloured hair standing on end as it tried to claw the air itself to get away from this human animal. In that brief moment of indecision, McBaird saw a soda dispenser and snatched it up, aiming it with marksman skill. The jet of soda hit the creature where it hung and blasted it across a now aptly named mess. It may have been a purely instinctive way to defend himself against an impromptu attack, but McBaird's roar seemed to be a turning point for the strangelings. 
Even though none of the unit soldiers had been killed, the number and primitive of diminutive viciousness of the creatures had taken its toll with wounds, painful, of none too deep bite marks and exhaustion. The body count for the strangelings had been high, at least half their number, and an uneasy silence fell over the area as the hiss of the soda faded, leaving only the sound of tiny scuttling feet and small shadows as they scurried away. Cadwallader looked around. He knew that a retreat could just be a prelude to a regrouping and renewed attack. While Unit knew how to fight in conventional terms, even unconventionable ones given the usual combat against aliens and other strange creatures, the strangelings defied any of their usual tactics. But it could be the break they needed. Analysis, he demanded of his brigade, as they and the other soldiers cautiously met in a large, wary huddle from their various defensive positions, an eye always on where the strangings might suddenly return. As Mandel checked the ammo in his pistol, he confirmed the regroup and resurge of another attack. But it was Lovett who made the grey hairs on Cadwallader's scalp prickle. They could be going for their hostages, sir. Macbeth grunted an agreement. I, in retaliation, are to force us to surrender. Mandel kept his voice level. Sir, the men are exhausted from this battle, and our ammo is lower now. We need to press on quickly if we're not to be overwhelmed next time, even if we've dented their numbers. Ruad, sorry to sound sexist, but as a woman, they were more popular with you lot. Do you know how many strange things there were in that box from Denmark? How many were distributed around at quarters? Ruad bit her lip as she thought quickly. No more than thirty, I'd say. Cadwallader did a quick mental count. I'd say we killed about ten. Let's say there's twenty more. The odds are slightly better in our favour, and we handled ourselves admirably in hand to hand. He straightened up and looked round. Right. One team will make four munitions and get more weapons. I need two more teams to rescue the hostages. They already took us by surprise. Let's backfoot them and let them know what unit stands for. He bared his tattoo as they all cheered, Omnia, bravio, contritum. The brigadier took heart when a small group of dishevelled strangelings returned, caked with food and dripping with beverages. Some supported injured, limping strangelings, and even though Joe knew the creatures to be deadly, she felt her lump in her throat when it was clear a couple of them were dead, carried by their compatriots. Those large, beady eyes glistened with small tears. Looks like the brigade did hold their own, the brigadier commented. That goes well. If I know Cadwallader, he'll press home the advantage. He tried not to sound like he was giving orders, his voice low and indirect. Stay alert, people. It's like it. But he was aware that the other hostages were watching with some guilt as the strangling leader knelt beside his dead, waving the letter opener meaningfully over their small, lifeless bodies as he bestowed some sort of posthumous blessing upon them. Cadwallader pulled over a rough map of unit headquarters, hastily half-drawn in the scattered gravy and mash of a pie that had splattered over one of the tables. Here, he pointed to where the stationery store was marked by a small dumpling. 
There are a couple of high small windows, but a bullet in each and a stun grenade will cause enough confusion inside. We'll synchronize an attack in six minutes at uh, 120 hours. Everyone check their watches. Mark. Preparing their scant weaponry and ammo and moving with quiet, aware stealth, the three unit teams unlocked the mess doors and slipped out on their various missions. Even though it still sounded humorously high-pitched, the Stranging Leader's warble had the low, slow sadness of any human eulogy. As it finished, the other Strangelings made a gesture over their hearts and stretched one small hand towards their fallen as they knelt and bowed their heads. Four of them unfurled some chamois leathers used for cleaning and covered their dead colleagues as a final loving farewell. As the other Strangelings rose as one, tears in their beady eyes, the leader turned to face the Brigadier. The stranging voice raised to an angry pitch as it pointed its letter opener like a sword and made a threatening gesture. It bared its small sharp teeth viciously and gestured for the strangelings to stand either side of the brigadier's bound shins. Apprehensively, the brigadier instinctively started to curl his legs up, but with another snarl the stranging leader indicated they should grab his trousers. Where the strangings were strong, the brigadier made to kick them away, but with several on either side, he was astonished to find they held him fast. Sweat beaded on his forehead as he recalled what Agnita Ustergaard had said about them needing blood to live. His. As one, Macbeth and Ruard drew their pistols, moved away from the cover, and aimed at the windows. Every bullet of their low ammo had to count. Macbeth's shout filtered through the window. The brigadier, his lower trousers shredded by the strangeling, recognised the Latin terms for stun and ten. Like himself, the brigade did not know if the strangelings understood English, but they were taking no chances and knew the brigadier had learned Latin at university. The strangelings looked around, wondering where the voice was coming from. The brigadier knew what was coming, and had scant seconds to warn the others, knowing they could not cover their ears and only shut their eyes. Stunner! He yelled to the others. Brace yourselves! Macbeth and Ruad fired bullet after bullet in rapid succession, trying to carve a large enough hole in the pane until the glass shattered inwards, taking the wire reinforcement with it. It took agonizingly long seconds. Ruard threw her pistol to Macbeth and primed the stun grenade. Then she leapt at the wall, gripped boots skittered for footfolds as she tossed it through the hole with the skill of a netball player before she fell again with an uneasy balance beside Macbeth. With a smile of, well done lassie, he handed back her pistol and the two ran back into the dark shadows of the building. The stun grenade arced through the air, landing with a thud close to the strangelings. Their beady eyes examined it in astonishment. They didn't see their hostages, close their eyes tight and turn their heads, one ear against the wall to minimise the effects of the grenade. Then it went off. The blast was deafening and Joe Grant let out a scream as a noise pounded her exposed eardrum painfully. The magnesium aluminium compound flared with brilliant eye-aching intensity, visible even through the closed eyelids of the humans. To the strangelings, their wide nocturnal eyes, used to the dark caves of Bornholm, it was blinding. They staggered around, eyes watered for a different reason now as they covered their tortured ears and howled in a high-pitched pain. 
the brigadier tried to collect his partly stunned wits when the ajar door slammed open, propelled by the hefty boot of Sergeant Major Cadwallader, Mandel and Lovett swept in, pistols aimed but the tiny strangings were still too dazed to offer resistance. Taking stock, they moved swiftly and dragged the bound hostages outside, one at a time, where other soldiers unsheathed their knives and cut away their bindings. With moans of relief, the brigadier, closely followed by Joe Grant, Agnita Ustergaard, Carol Bell, Osgood and Benton, clambered to their feet and stumbled away. Lovett was about to drag Mike Yates free when a couple of the day's strangelings staggered against his foot. Sensing prey, they snarled blindly and started to clamber up his uniform trousers, tiny sharp teeth gnashing at the thick material. Dropping Yates where he had been half dragged, Lovett spun and kicked high as if aiming at an imaginary football into the air. One strangling, yelling wildly as it shot close past Cal Wallader's head, disappeared at speed through the door. The other attempted to make Lovett's right shin a meal. Mandel swept low and fast, grabbing the small, clammy, naked figure and throwing it at the hole in the window. His aim was slightly out, and the strangling died almost instantly as it was impelled on a lethally razor-sharp shard of glass. A crazy game of stranging football ensued as the small creatures started to regain their sight and wits. Booted feet kicked them away against the wall furthest from the door until everyone was outside. Then Cadwallader was slamming the store door shut, locking it with a key left there by Agnita Ustergaard. The soldiers ran to catch up their freed hostages and help them as their aching limbs slowly regained their circulation. Cadwallader saluted the somewhat dishevelled brigadier. Order, sir. The brigadier saluted as formally as his untidy appearance allowed. Good work, Sergeant Major. We may have won this battle, but those strangelings may get out the window, and even a small number could wreak havoc if they got out of the grounds. He looked around to see Osgood fidgeting impatiently in his direction. Sir, the workshop, the lamps. The sound of booted feet approaching at speed interrupted them. Cadwallader and Mandel spun to level their pistols ready as Macbeth and Ruard, heading the other team sent to raid munitions, appeared round the corner. All were now heavily armed to the teeth. Sir! Macbeth saluted his superiors, cradling a submachine gun in the crook of his arm. Let's see how the wee beasties cope with one of these babies! Confined spaces aren't the best place for those, Macbeth, the brigadier remarked sharply. He looked at the door, which was now shuddering as the enraged strangelings hammered at it. But all things considered, he mused, leave a few men down the corridor covering the door. Anything that comes through it, use small arms. Mandel, take the rest and set up outside. If the strangelings so much as poke their hair out the window, give them everything you've got. He gave an involuntary shudder at the thought of the even smaller arms which had held his trousers tightly, preparing him to feast upon and try to dismiss it. Osgood, the show is yours. Let's hope those blessed lamps work. Not privy to the prior conversation, Cadwallader and Macbeth looked in askance at his superior as they hastily made their way to the workshop. Inside the store, the strangling leader had given up using his letter opener to try and bash the door open. One of the strangelings looked up and saw the two small windows with their jagged holes and the body of their impaled compatriot. Squealing wildly and pointing, the others followed his gaze and tiny finger upwards and past them and started to climb and bound up the shelving to escape. 
In the workshop, the brigadier, Cadwallader, and the others watched as Osgood did his best to rig up the three full spectral lamps to portable power units that could be carried in backpacks. Will this take much longer? The brigadier sighed. Osgood cursed apologetically. Normally, these powered units would be on recharge, but just two came back from being used. There's a power in them, but not a full stack, and my instincts tell me we'll need every kilowatt of all three to have any effect if they work. Optimistic to the last day, Osgood, Cadwallader muttered. As a technical guy, I always subscribe to Murphy's Law. What can go wrong will, so you try to reduce any difficulty. A bit like inverse conductivity. The path of least resistance, you might say. He chuckled at his joke. The brigadier and Cadwallader just gave him a blank look. With a shrug, Osgood got on with the job. Sir, Ruad whispered urgently to Mandel. Using night sight binoculars, even though the night sky was beginning to brighten, now the eerie green moon had settled behind cloud. Low on the horizon, she could see movement behind the two shattered windows. She passed the binoculars to him for his own assessment. Okay, men, he said quietly. This could be it. I'd normally say if you don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. But the little buggers are too small. You heard the break? Any movement? And you don't stop firing until there isn't any. The unit soldiers, best suited to sniping, looked through their rifle night sights and fingers tightened on triggers as they each acquired targets. Behind them, those armed with submachine guns readied themselves to give covering fire over their heads. Osgood checked connections to the back-packed power unit as Cadwallader hefted up the large and heavy full spectral lamp. Not really intended to be portable, I'm afraid. Mainly lab use, Osgood explained. No worries, Cadwallader showed the strain of his weight on his face. I'll manage. Benton had been wired up with the second, and Macbeth had the third. Already? the brigadier asked wearily. He had taken the weight to try and tidy himself up, but he was still aware the lower legs of his trousers were somewhat shredded. With a reluctant nod, wishing he had more time to test the lamps, Osgood gave him a thumbs up. The sound of a few distant shots punctuated the quiet, followed by machine gun fire. Looks like they started the war without us, the brigadier remarked wryly. Let's see if we can shed some light on the matter, eh? Smirking at his own joke, if only to get Osgood back, the brigadier checked his pistol and led them out. The proverbial hell was breaking loose outside. The unit soldiers, now fully armed, had no need to hold back, but they tried not to waste shots. Each of the two small high windows were now devoid of frosted glass. The skeletal grid of reinforcing wire all but shot away. Every now and then a mop of multicoloured air would pop up and more bullets would narrowly miss as it ducked down again. Ruard had the night sight binoculars again, confirming the sniper's hits, or rather lack of. Something didn't feel right, and she said so. Mandel took the binoculars and looked. What doesn't feel right? he asked. Ruard checked her watch. Is a strangeling popping up on the left now? A few bullets ricocheted off the window frame and it disappeared. She waited a few moments. And now, on the right, Mandel nodded as more shots made it disappear. There's a pattern, Ruard explained. Not quite clockwork, but close. I think we're being blindsided. It's a diversion. For what? 
Mandel worried. Just a waste ammunition? It did not seem likely. It was Lovett who noticed, casually looking up at the movement on the roof, that he thought was an early bird, but birds tend not to be nocturnal, and even the approaching sunrise dulled behind a curtain of clouds on the horizon had not stirred them for the first overture of dawn chorus. The skylight! They've got through! He yelled, breaking off to aim a submachine gun as a vague movement distilled itself into an acrobatic circus of whirling, hooping, strangelings leaping down towards them. Behind them, the two strangelings behind the windows, which had been waving a couple of rulers, each topped with multicoloured wigs made from feather dusters, left in the store, dropped them and peered out. With a giggling war cry, they jumped through their respective windows and joined the Ferrari outside. The sound of the battle reached the brigadier and his group as they closed on the store. Outside sounds like the proverbial hell, Cudwallader remarked, starting to double time it down the corridor as best with a weight of the lamp. Aye, they're singing our song, Macbeth agreed and ran after him. With a sigh, the brigadier and Osgood broke into an exhausted trot behind them. Quick reflexes had got some of the strangelings in mid-leap, but that still left a number dodging and weaving in and out of the shots aimed at them as bullets churned up the turf around them. To the little creatures it seemed more a game, and they did not advance their ground quickly, much to the relief of the unit soldiers from behind their protective barrier of bushes and shrubbery. But if the strangelings reached it... In the desperate battle, Lovett wished he had a fag to relax his nerves. The idea hit him suddenly, and he struggled to yell to Mandel, the private nodded and shouted for the soldiers to fall back, still firing. Lovett shouldered his submachine gun on its strap and fumbled for the box of matches in his fatigue's breast pocket. Finding them, he pulled one out urgently and struck it, tossing it with a flick of the wrist into the bushes between them and the strangelings. The bush smouldered briefly, then burst into flames. Unseen on the other side, there were yelps of surprise and distress from the strangelings. A small conflagration detached itself from the burning bush towards the soldiers at ground level. A strangeling, eyes wide in pain with its hair ablaze, ran screaming and trying to pat out its burning scalp, ran towards Ruard. Make no mistake though, they might look cute or pretty, she thought. But you have to treat all as deadly. No questions. Just shoot. Shoot to kill. The strangling was too close to shoot at, so she raised a booted foot and stamped it out of its misery. She was torn as to whether it was a merciful coup de grace or merely self-defence. A couple more soldiers had produced matches and a lighter that had set fire to the bushes either side, in case the strangling was tempted to work their way around. Four dark figures detached themselves from the long shadows of the building. Mandal and his squad heard a familiar voice bellow, Keep down and close your eyes! Instinctively, as all soldiers under combat conditions did when ordered, they did so, covering their heads and expecting more stun grenades or explosions. Eye-searing brightness like a million flashbulbs condensed into three spotlights going off in the dark, illuminated area. The strangeling screamed again. Osgood gave a short cheer of success, but it was short-lived. The lamps quickly dulled and went out. Cursing, Osgood rushed to the power pack on Cadwallader's back. The dials were swinging to red, its charge spent in one massive effulgence. For the second time that night, the strangelings found themselves blinded, blundering aimlessly around as their eyes tried to adjust again. Then some of them began to move, as if in slow motion, their movements clumsy and stumbling as their limbs stiffened. 
Their feet became leaden and plastic-looking, arms hung limply. The others came to their aid, torn between helping them and pressing their attack. With flaming bushes ahead and the source of the painful deadening light on one side, not knowing the lamps had been rendered useless, the strangelings finally seemed to be hemmed in. Their leader waved his letter opener above his head, burbling to try and get those still capable to keep going. Wide little eyes looked round in fear. Then it happened. The partly risen sun flared through a gap in the clouds, low on the horizon. It caught the strangeling square on, standing in a scattered huddle on a churned up patch of lawn. Frozen like rabbits and rapidly approaching car headlights, they stared at the brilliant orange disc as it dawned on them. The life drained from them quickly, their manic poses now captured for all eternity as small, bizarre, plasticized statues. The leader was immortalized in a defiant gesture of futile battle readiness. A deathly silence fell across the scene. Once the threat of the strangelings had been contained, the soldiers quickly scooping them up into boxes to be sealed, the word went out covertly to other unit divisions around the world to warn them. Thankfully, mainland Europe had had a 100% cloud cover, so it was only unit headquarters in England which had been attacked. Now it was day. Unit acted quickly to identify and contain the distribution of the strangelings. A telex from the company responsible confirmed it was only the limited edition strangelings which had genuinely come from the caves, while the other mass-produced facsimiles were 100% for Kelligdansk plastic. By nightfall, a crystal clear white moon, now clear of the strange space cloud, did nothing to reanimate any more of the small trolls, except in the imaginations of thousands of happy small girls around the continent oblivious to the real threat, just as it should be. Private Mandau finally got to his locker after a full day of clearing up. The running skirmish through the building and grounds had made a real mess of everything, and decorating duty seemed on the cards for the immediate foreseeable. It was only then that he remembered the two strangelings he had for his daughter and her friend. He cautiously brought the small box out from his bag and examined it. A hole had been torn in it and through the bag bottom. He sighed a breath of relief. No doubt they had been rescued, and because a thorough search had turned up, no others, he assumed that they were among the number accounted for. Unknown to anyone, the two strangelings now cuddled under the floorboards of the unit kitchen, one male and one rare female. A shadowed location gave them a position from which to scavenge for crumbs and drink, away from the sun, deadly to their continuing life. Like Adam and Eve, they were the first two who could rebuild an underground strangeling Eden until their numbers grew again. Then another night of the strangelings would begin anew. <laughs>